Our first lesson comes to us from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul, in chapter 12, has just presented evidence of the Corinthians' lack of love, and now defines love after ending chapter 12, saying, And I will show you a still more excellent way. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, am I a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, church. Today's second lesson comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, and a special lesson it is indeed, because it is about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in all of his glory with witnesses, Peter, James, and John. Listen now to the word of the Lord as it is recorded in Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, 
tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What a Sunday. Transfiguration, second. Black History Month, third. And Valentine's Day, all rolled into one. Considering the state of affairs in our communities and all across our country, we could focus our attention on any one of these for a noteworthy occasion and create a series of sermons, all of which independently or in concert, borrowing from the introduction to Ken Williams' uh, wonderful reading of today's first lesson, we would have to highlight the lack of the look of love, the common thread that will run through today's message. Every year, there are two days that hold special meaning for me. They are February 13th and 14th. There are other special days in their own right as well. However, as we all know, the 14th is Valentine's Day today. That day, with all its surprise gifts, configurations of hearts, boxes of chocolates and romantic dinners that are the culmination of the search for that special person who agrees to be your valentine. Traditional expressions of amore. February 13th, on the other hand, is special for me because it is the birthday of that special someone who became my Valentine 48 years ago this year. Happy Valentine's Day, Romana. That said, today I am pressed to confess, especially after listening more closely, as I pray we all did, to Brother Ken's reading of the characteristics of true love. 
agape is a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of another without expecting anything in return. Paul tells us we are called to agape love through Christ's example. When he wrote, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is a love that is deeper than fashioned hearts, seize nuts and chews, or steak and lobster. It is a love that puts others before ourselves, not just for a holiday or for a moment, but enduringly. As we observe Black History Month in various ways, allow me to suggest another example of love from perhaps an unexpected source, one that invites us to suspend our special realities and visit in another's mind with theirs so we can begin to feel how things look to them. We are about to explore, among other writings for our Lenten series, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. You are invited to read it as a love letter, one that certainly has a chastening undertone that is, however, based on the word of God and not on the word of Martin. About midway through Reverend Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he speaks to eight white Alabama clergymen to whom the letter is addressed. They criticized King and worried the civil rights campaign would cause violence. They called King an extremist and told blacks they should be patient. Dr. King responds, explaining his role of standing in the gap between two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up in part of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, were so drained of self-respect and sense of somebodiness that they have adjusted to segregation. And in part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit from segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred. It comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. Nourished by the Negro's frustration over 
the continued existence of racial discrimination, this movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. Dr. King writes in the language of Paul to the Corinthian church as he addresses his white clergy colleagues. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent, nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. For there is the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. Dr. King, citing Reinhold Niebuhr, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, Paul Tillich, other theologians, and the civil disobedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. Dr. King was neither a rabble-rouser nor an extremist, operating in a vengeful manner, but a God-fearing advocate for equity, equality, and justice. That, I believe, is why his response was written to his fellow clergy rather than to the people with whom he marched, protested, and was often arrested. This man of God functioned well aware that it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the last week's message, Pastor Chris poignantly pointed out that we are in our current circumstances together. She said that not practicing our faith leads us to take on the personas of the world rather than being the people God created and wants us to be together. The late renowned theologian Howard Thurman in his book, Disciplines of the Spirit, quoted Oswald W. S. McCall, who alluded to it this way from his The Hand of God. Better, under no illusion, you shall gather to yourself the images you love. As you go, the shapes, the lights, the shadows of the things you have preferred will come to you. Yes, inveterately, inevitably, as bees to their hives. And there in your mind and spirit, they will leave with you their distilled essence, sweet as honey or bitter as gall. 
cleverness may select skillful words to cast a veil about you, and circumspection may never sleep, yet you will not be hid, no. As year adds to year, that face of yours, which once lay smooth in your baby crib, like an unwritten page, will take to itself lines and still more lines as the parchment of an old historian who jealously sets down all the story. And there, more deep than acid etched the steel, will grow the inscribed narrative of your mental habits, the emotions of your heart, your sense of conscience, your response to duty, what you think of your God and of your fellow men and of yourself. It will all be there, for men become like that which they love. And the name thereof is written on their brows. Agape. Agape is a Greco-Christian term referring to unconditional love. The highest form of love. Charity. The love of God for humanity and of humanity for God. I suggest that it is this form of love that Peter, James, and John experienced by their inclusion in his, uh, uh, as his disciples and witnesses to Jesus' miraculous deeds, the feeding of the crowds of four and 5,000, walking on water, healing all who touched him, teaching about inner purity, to wit, it's not what goes into our mouths that defiles us, but what comes out of them. For what comes out reveals what is in our hearts. The faith of the Canaanite woman whose daughter Jesus freed from demonic possession. All of this and more, beginning with John the Baptist's death in chapter 14 and culminating in chapter 17, with the transfiguration, his glorification, and God's affirmation. As it's written, while Peter was still speaking about building shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Proof of Jesus' love for them was the fact that he entrusted Peter, James, and John with knowledge too deep for them to understand. Which is why Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Perhaps then they would be able to explain what they had witnessed and heard about Jesus' unparalleled charity, the sacrifice of his very life. 
so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. I submit to you, sisters and brothers, that what Jesus allowed them to see unmistakably had the look of love. When we begin to understand and believe that we as the church are indeed the body of Christ, then we will embrace the truth embodied in that wonderful hymn of the church. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, because we too will unmistakably have the look of love. Let's pray. Loving God, it is my prayer that those who joined us for worship today heard some word that will serve to bring them closer and more lovingly to you and to each other. In Jesus' precious name we pray, giving thanks. And all of God's people say, Amen.